Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today, very special guest today is Jay Lunn of the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. He's a professor in civil engineering as well as environmental engineering. Uh, and he's someone, everybody says, hey, you want to find out about water, you go to Jay. So we're going to go to Jay on the last day of 2021. Jay, thank you for coming. You're welcome. Happy to be here. What, so here's the burning question after reading uh, innumerable stories over the last week about the rains, the snows, and all this. Where are we on the drought now and looking forward? And is a drought now a dirty word? And should we be looking at deluge now as the operative word in stories? Um, well, we've certainly had some very wet months. Um, certainly October and this December have been wetter than average. November was quite a bit drier than average. Uh, October, that one two-day storm, that incredible two-day storm we had at the very end of October, made yeah. October this year the second wettest October in the last hundred or so years uh, in terms of Northern California precipitation. It was followed by November, which is one of the drier Novembers in, on record. So we had just within those two-month period a, a nice microcosm of California's climate, you know, very wet and very dry. <laughs> <laughs> often in very close proximity. And then this December has also been very wet. Um, I think it's going to be probably the 16th wettest, no, the 23rd wettest December on record. And that makes this period from October to November, to December rather, the 16th wettest October to, to December in more than 100 years of record for precipitation in Northern California. So we're at a we're at a very wet few months in a drought. Several other years we've had this amount of rain this early. Uh, one of them was 2017, which was the wettest year on record, and the, the year we lost uh, the spill spillway at Oroville. And and another one of the the years that had about this amount of rain by uh, by this time was 2013, which was a drought year. So I, I think that illustrates that. While this first three months has been quite wet, um, tie with 2017, actually, uh, we could still have a dry year. And looking forward, uh, forecasting seems to be better than it's ever been, at least for me, looking at weather forecasts going forward a week or two, and you even get rain and wind even gets forecast. And yeah, I, I think the, the forecasts are pretty good for about a week, um, but we still have uh, three months, maybe a little bit a little bit more than three months left in the, in the wet season. Yeah. So um, the forecast is all right, but uh, we've, we've got some good water in the bank right now, up in the hills. Quite a bit of it is snow. Some of it coming into the reservoirs. Balsam has, has refilled essentially for this time of year, uh, but, but still Shasta and Oroville, uh, New Don Pedro, quite a few others have, are still quite low. We've had the feast or famine kind of, Thing going on here for some time with water and drought and drought and water and and now we see these fires this is really i can't remember this kind of juxtaposition we're in the west colorado have these terrible fires going on right now uh so that's dry as a bone there here we're so wet we just are really surprised and amazed is this climate change in front of our eyes happening right now and if it is how do we plan for stuff like this well, I think some of it is climate change. Certainly the, the climate in the West and California as well is, has been quite a bit warmer. And so if you don't get precipitation, um, 
that that moisture in the soil evaporates, and then you you have a very fire prone situation. We've been we've been you know fortunate this year that the, the rains have come. Uh, we'll see how long the rains last. Wildfire seasons are going to be longer, or they are longer now, and they're going to be longer still. I think as um, as the temperatures increase, because the remaining soil moisture at the end of the wet season doesn't last as long, and so the so the fire seasons are going to start earlier. And then if we if the rains are delayed, uh, precipitation is delayed with the start of the wet season, uh, we'll, we'll see those fire seasons being prolonged. One of the options that always when we talk about the drought. Um, an option I like, and nobody else does that I talk to, but I like the idea of reservoirs, but there are lots of environmental problems with those, building those and maintaining those, I understand, but it just seems like sort of common sense to have a pot of water available that you're saving when times get really dry. What are some of the options you look at that would think you think might be more effective than those, or are those effective? Um, I, I think, you know, I know I, one of my academic fields is reservoir operations. So I, I start off prejudiced to like reservoirs, but when I look at them for California, almost all the proposals are much more expensive than, than are worthwhile. So they're, they're providing expensive water for, for less valuable water uses at, at the increment. So I, I think economically, there's not a lot of reason to build a lot of huge additional reservoir space. And even if you were to build all of the proposed reservoirs that, that people are sort of seriously proposing, you would you might add 10% to our reservoir capacity in the state. So it, adding additional surface storage is never going to solve these problems in, in California. It can, it can have some incremental benefit, but it'll be an expensive way to do it. Uh, other solutions, I think, that are more promising, well, certainly water conservation in general. Um, we, we still have quite a bit we can do there. The uh, storage of water underground for droughts is particularly attractive, uh, particularly down in the Talari Basin where we have a lot of empty groundwater space. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think better management of groundwater, which, which California is, is pretty much on track to starting to do. Uh, it's not happening as fast as, as people would like, but uh, it's happening a lot faster than it was 10 years ago, right? You so, know, we, we hear a lot about subsidence and about the, the water aquifers being depleted I mean, is this rain that we've been getting, is that going to get down there into the aquifers or are we just so far away from what we need to be? Uh, like, what's it going to take to recharge those aquifers? And is that something that's going to happen conceivably in our lifetimes? Well, it depends on where you are in California. In, in the Sacramento Valley, um, we're much wetter up here. We haven't depleted the aquifers nearly as much. The aquifers tend to be well connected to the rivers and, and they tend to recharge pretty well. So I, I think even now we're probably recovering a lot of the groundwater pumping that we, extra groundwater pumping we did over the last two years of drought. But if you go further south down to the Bakersfield, Fresno areas, down to the Tulare Basin and parts of the San Joaquin Basin, uh, that's a much drier part of the state. They have depleted the groundwater, oh, maybe by the, on an order of hundred million acre feet over the last hundred years. And they have an average overdraft rate of about 2 million acre feet per year. So I don't think that's going to recover in our lifetimes. Uh, e even with Sigma, you're, you might get a little, you'll have to get a little bit of it back under Sigma, but that's going to require following half a million to a million acres of irrigated land in that part of the world. Now, can you explain what Sigma is for our listeners who might not know? Ah, yes, thank you. 
Sigma is the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. This was passed in 2014 of the previous drought, which requires that basically all the basins in California eliminate long-term groundwater overdraft by the year 2040. And that it, it set up a requirement that each local basin establish its own sustainable groundwater management agency and the plan to achieve uh, ending overdraft by 2040. Is there any other, uh, uh, I mean, we talked about reservoirs, but is there any other infrastructure that we should be doing now in terms of transporting water from one place to another or any that needs to be replaced because it's old? Any open flumes? Or, are there things out there we can do that are less than building reservoirs but are necessary and we should be doing now? I, I think there's still some inner ties that would be useful um, in different parts of, of the state. A lot of this has already been accomplished uh, since the 1991 drought. Uh, most of the cities in the Bay Area are now interconnected and that gives them a lot more flexibility that, than what they had at the time. Um, we have some additional uh, wastewater reuse plants. So we take taking wastewater, particularly in coastal areas, uh, and then treating it and then bringing it back into the service area for, for reuse uh, as a way of, of reducing demand for, for water out of the Central Valley and the like. Um, there's, of course, the uh, controversies over uh, having a, a through delta conveyance, you know, tunnels or aqueducts or bucket lines, whatever you, you choose. Um, I think that that has some value to it, but uh, you have to be careful how you do it. And I don't know that we've decided what that means yet. That's sort of a great example of where politics and water come together in California. Is that <laughs> right there? Well, water only becomes political because it's important. Yeah. Um, what about another weird one? I'll call it a weird one. Desalination. There's actually, uh, I think there's a pilot project going down uh, in Carlsbad, I think, or at least down in Southern California. It's more than a pilot project. They, they uh, now get several percent, San Diego now gets several percent of its water use from uh, ocean desalination uh, from a Poseidon plant down in Carlsbad, California. Um, this is a very expensive way to provide water. Um, it's certainly something that Saudi Arabia does and um, you know, a lot of places that really have no options. Uh, Israel does quite a bit of it. Uh, parts of Australia have, have uh, Perth, Australia uses a desalination plant. So it's something we can certainly do, but it's very expensive. It basically doubles the cost of water. How much in California? You know, I'm talking about the cost uh, or the amounts rather. How much of our water that we dr that people drink in California come through the Sierra snowpack? I mean, or is a result of the Sierra? Why is it? I guess basically, why is it so important to all of us? Well, uh, so if we didn't have a Sierra snowpack, if it all ran off as rain, so very, very warm kind of climate warming, how much would that affect our drinking water? Is that maybe a different way to phrase your question? Yeah. I, I don't think it would affect our drinking water very much. I think it would, because drinking water is very valuable. We don't use as much of it, certainly for drinking, but, but even for cities. Um, but it's valuable enough that we would find ways to store that snowpack in reservoirs and groundwater to make sure we had enough of it. What it really would affect is ecosystems and it would also really affect agriculture because agriculture has lower economic value to its, its water use you know, per acre foot. Um, and, and so they're, they're gonna 
they're going to lose out in terms of human water use. And then lack of snowpack is also going to have some pretty big effects on many of the ecosystems because mm -hmm. many of the ecosystems are actually the, the, the biology of those ecosystems is cued off of this historical snowmelt pulse. Is, I see the term um, percent of average used a lot in measuring uh, how much water we have. Now I saw just picking these three, uh, Northern Sierra, 172% of average at this point in the water year. Right. Another central 169%, Southern California, 154%. But it makes me wonder, should we redefine what average is, or is that redefined each year? Is that the proper yardstick, do you think? Um, I see some people refer to it as, a, as you know, such and such a percent of normal. And, and I, I prefer the word average because average has a statistical meaning, which is very precise. Whereas normal, I'm not sure there is a normal anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, totally. <laughs> um, but that all sounds good. That's a lot of water. 154% of average for this in the this point in the water year, which I, it starts October 1st, right? It, it could be much worse. Yes. The water year, our, our water year is different than our calendar year. Sort of like many organizations have a fiscal year that differs from the calendar year. Um, our water year starts October 1st, runs until the end of September. Uh -huh. I saw a, a story on the snow, the snow survey, the DWR does, and they poke that big hole, that post into the ground, you know, the tube into the ground. And it mentioned the snow level there, I think was 78 inches or 79 inches but then it measured the water level at 20. So what's happening? There's a snow melting and it's pooling at the bottom and it's, you can measure, I mean, the water is what we care about, right? So right. like- That's right. You want, you're interested in really in the water content of that snowpack. So if the snow falls and it's very fluffy, it's not very dense, uh, yeah. that doesn't contain as much water as, as a, a denser snow that might've fallen at a, at a uh, higher temperature, but still freezing. Um, and just has a higher density and so has a higher water content. Yeah, I will never forget that year. Gosh, this was about five years ago that Jerry Brown went up to the snow survey and there was no snow. They're just the the rod is just on the on the bare ground. I mean, maybe the first time ever, or at least the first time in modern history. And for me, that was a real telling point that something was going on. I mean, I already knew that that climate change was happening, obviously, but that was an example where I just think this is absolutely not normal. Yeah, it's very unambiguous when that happens. It's really stark. It's amazing. Basically, a, a dirt flat up there at Echo Summit. It was just um, some of the more, some of the stranger options for getting more water. One of them, I haven't heard this lately, so I guess this is totally discredited, was pulling an iceberg down from Alaska and bringing it into San Francisco Bay. Uh, is there anything, I mean, is that not that particular plan, but taking icebergs, I guess you get them from the cap that's already melting and dissolving, right? And bringing them down here. What, where did that go? Well, I mean, there, there's a saying in water uh, that particularly among economists that there's no such thing as water shortage, but there's always a, often a shortage of cheap water. And, and so I think that's really very true for California. We, we very rarely have true shortages of water it's almost always possible to get water to a particular place if you're willing to pay enough for it. Mm -hmm. and, and very reasonably, there's a, a lot of things that we would not do just because it's not worthwhile. Well, and I remember, I, I hate to say, I don't remember who this was that proposed it, but one of the candidates in the recall 
proposed shipping water, I believe from Kentucky, there had been some terrible floods. And he's, well, why can't we build a, a water pipeline from, I forget which of the Eastern states it was, but uh, I was thinking, you know, people really do not understand how, exactly how difficult an infrastructure policy is uh, because he floated this with a straight face. It was not a joke. And I'm sure that there were probably people out there taking him seriously, but I just think, really, you think you're going to run a pipeline, you know, 2,800 miles or whatever it would be. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So people have all sorts of solutions, but they all kind of fall apart as soon as you put any kind of logic and cost to them. Yeah. But most of these proposals, if you just pencil out the costs, you'll see that, they're not really reasonable. And then and then you get to the environmental and political and all the other considerations that people like to talk about. But the economics alone clears the deck of, of probably 90%, 95% of all the all the proposals that, that well, people make like on that that are like that. Well, one other proposal you touched on earlier is treated wastewater. And that's something we do now, although, as I understand it, we do not put treated wastewater back into the drinking supply. You know, I know that there was a, John will remember this, there was a toilet to tap movement uh, at some point that never really caught on. But I thought they did. I thought uh, they went back into the, uh, back into the, <laughs> into the drinking supply, which same drinking water supply. Well, so, I mean, there's, we, we treat the wastewater from Sacramento, right? And it goes back into the Sacramento River and it goes down into the Delta, some of which is pumped out of the Delta and goes to San Jose to be treated again as drinking water. Some of it goes down to Los Angeles and San Diego to be treated again as drinking water. So we do indirect potable reuse of, of wastewater already. Uh, Orange County, California uh, will take its treated wastewater, treat it again, injected into groundwater, it, it sits around in the groundwater for six months or so, and then they pump it out, run it through another treatment plant for drinking water. So we have quite a lot of indirect potable reuse that occurs and has occurred for a long time. There are a couple of cities in Texas, I think El Paso is one of them, that does direct potable reuse in oh. the last few years. And so I think we're starting to see that direct potable reuse uh, could easily happen in California, particularly and down in Southern the, California. What's the cost on that? It's cheaper than desalting seawater. Yeah, one wow. would think. And I mean, we this has a long history. I mean, other countries do this. And if I remember right, the water on the space station is oh. all reused. So they've been drinking, yeah. we've been drinking this water. And in, in a theory, there's only so much water on Earth. So we're all drinking the water that's been processed through our systems and our toilets for millions of years. We just don't think about it that way. And it just seems like that's something where it's not a scientific problem. It's not a cost problem. It's a ick factor problem that we just need to get people used to it. Yeah, sometimes I, I joke that uh, when Orange County takes its, does its indirect potable reuse, it spiritually cleanses the water by leaving it in groundwater for a bit. <laughs> you know, this has... A little bit to do with what we're talking about, but there I saw a documentary a couple years ago uh, called How Beer Saved the World. And it basically, according to the documentary, it started very definitely with uh, a long time ago, people being very suspicious of the water supply and an unhealthy water supply. And a farmer noticed that standing water, which had covered one of his crops, was fermenting. 
And the rest is history. Is so maybe the, the silver client, uh, silver lining in this cloud is we'll all start drinking more beer, which I would heartily support. <laughs> as long as you don't drink too much and drive. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, Jay, one last question. When, when, when we uh, uh, look at the best way, I mean, I know you've consulted with government agencies among many others, but what is, if you look at the things we should be doing right now, we need to get started on to sort of buffer ourselves against this, these extremes. We keep the, the hot, the, the, the floods, then the, everything in between. What, what should we be doing right now as a, as a state? Well, I, I like to tell people that you know, in California, we do a terrible job managing water, except when you compare us to most other parts of the world, we do a pretty good job. So you sort of have to, to be optimistic and pessimistic at the same time in the sense that when you look at what we do to manage water, what we've developed over the last hundred years or so, we actually, we have a tremendous economy, tremendous number of people, and even our ecosystem is in generally in better shape than ecosystems and other comparable climates in other parts of the world. So in that sense, we do a really good job here, but we need to do better. And I think the ways we need to do better are in using less water, and that's going to include largely reducing the agricultural acreage that in California, in, particularly in areas where we can't sustain it because of groundwater overdraft or, or salinization. And then we're going to have to really figure out how we manage for ecosystems. Uh, this is one area, it, it feels like we're sort of in the early 1900s and at where we were with public health at that time. We were we were figuring out that we, we could actually start to solve this problem of, of public health, people dying from drinking poor water. Um, but it really took us decades to get organized and to organize the science to do it and to find ways to fund the, the treatment and, and the uh, providing good drinking water for most people. So um, I think the most important thing we need to do is to organize ourselves to be effective on these problems. We have certainly have our very rich society. The cost of these things, they're large, but they're, they're not unaffordable for our society. The hardest thing is to get ourselves organized. Mm -hmm. Great. Jay Lund, thank you so much. Jay Lund from the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. Thank and you. Jay, happy New Year to you. Uh, Jay Lund, thank you so much for joining us. Now, uh, Tim Foster and I have the delightful chore of deciding who had the worst year in California politics. We usually do who had the worst week, uh, but this time there are so many candidates, we spread it over a long, you know, a longer period. And this is the last day of 2021. So we thought this sounds good. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Well, let's be honest, John. There wasn't anybody that we saw that really had that bad of a week. This <laughs> is the struggle of doing the worst week in California politics. Some weeks, there's just, it's so slow. There's no one that really had a terrible, terrible week. So we decided we would cheat. And uh, this, since this is the first podcast of, of 2022, we'll look back and say who had the, the worst 2021. So we're cheating. You're coming along with us. You're buying in. You're, you're just as guilty as we are. Absolutely. So it was pretty close. Some of our candidates, John, for worst year. Well, we thought Kevin Faulkner, uh, mainstay of Republican politics, long viewed as a statewide candidate, uh, got beat up badly in the recall uh, election to, to try and oust Gavin Newsom. I don't know if or when he will come back, but that was a big surprise. He clearly was the most professional uh, Republican politician of the, uh, in that group, and he got worked over pretty good. John Cox, who was a 
governor or a candidate for governor lost that out earlier to Gavin Newsom, gave a ton of money and he didn't go anywhere. Um, those who clearly had a bad year. Um, uh, Mark Ridley Thomas had a very, very, very bad year. Uh, LA Times had been investigating him for a number of years, but finally the, the other shoe dropped and he was accused of corruption. He was accused of funneling money to USC in order to get his son uh, basically a scholarship, a full paid scholarship to teach over there as well as go to school. Uh, he was leveraging his influence as a member of the city council, which by the way, he's been suspended from since then until this all gets cleared up. He clearly had a bad year. Now, um, to be fair, I mean, to be clear, he does deny these charges and this, he has been uh, charged, but he is innocent until proven guilty, but still not a good look. That's right. And these are federal charges, by the way. This, and that, that's a quantitative difference between that state charges. But uh, and then speaking moving on state charges and speaking of state charges, we have Alma Hernandez, well known as a major labor advocate, uh, executive director of SEIU, uh, a long time uh, has had a long time appearance on our top 100 list. Rightly so. People have always spoken of her that way. But she and her husband got caught in a corruption uh, and corruption allegations. Uh, money laundering, and some other issues in Sacramento County Superior Court. These are state charges. Among other things, uh, they were accused of funneling money from her. Uh, uh, she was accused of funneling money and her husband of funneling money to a state Senate campaign, which was a no-no. Uh, they, they were accused of um, overbilling for products that they needed. Her husband, I think, or at the time was running a, a hospitality business of some sort. There are a lot of allegations there that need to be cleared up. And she definitely clearly had a bad year. Not the only one from SEIU because Yvonne Walker got popped earlier in the year in an, a, an election that was won by a person who has really not really impressed anybody and probably won't be around all that long anyway. Richard Lewis Brown. Yeah. And, and to be clear, uh, by popped, we mean she lost the election. She was yeah. not charged with anything. Uh, Yvonne Walker, longtime uh, yeah. president. And I, I guess it wasn't really a shock because she had not done nearly as well in the prior election. But uh, I think it was just a shock because Richard Lewis Brown was sort of seen as this outsider candidate that no one expected yeah. uh, to come in. And there was a split vote uh, and he came out at the top of the ticket. Yeah. Uh, you're quite right. And uh, earlier in that earlier election, several of uh, Von Walker's key aides were not able to get elected or key supporters were not able. Uh, they lost election to that. So there was foreshadowing there about what would happen to her in the subsequent election. Uh, Tim, any others you can think of? No, you know, I think and it, to be fair, you know, when we were first talking about this, Yvonne Walker seemed like someone who was a, a potential candidate for worst worst year. But compared to. Almer Hernandez and compared to Mark Ridley Thomas, she's, you know, she shouldn't even be in the same breath. She, you know, she'll go on to, she'll live to fight another day. And, and uh, I'm sure is, you know, sleeping just fine tonight uh, compared to them. So, you know, but uh, as far as who had the worst year between the two of them, that you could make some arguments, probably Mark Ridley Thomas, I would, I would assume. You will have to wait till a couple of years when the when the charges actually amount to something and, and the, the legal woes are determined. But uh, neither one of them had a good year. It's I guess it's arguable who had the worst. 
Yep, I agree. There you go. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. This is John Howard, and we will talk to you soon. Talk to you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.